Okay, welcome to day one of Assurance of Salvation. Sorry, I forgot to start recording. So, I'm originally from Montgomery, Alabama. Who's from Alabama here? Oh my gosh, only two people? We'll hold it down. We will hold it down. Um, so, I ended up going to Tulane, and that's where I played football. Went from there to Troy. There from, uh, from Troy to, actually, I played uh, four months with the New England Patriots. And then after I got cut from there, I uh, played in another league called the FXFL. And uh, finished out the season. After that... I got married. That's why I put exclamation point. Marriage. Um, so we were married for almost eight years. And uh, after that, started seminary. Uh, ended up graduating from RTS Jackson. Mississippi people, what up? Right? Here we go. Um, and then from there, after doing, raise your hand if you're one of my former youth students via youth director or intern. Yes, there we go. We're slowly taking over the world as well. Um... So I have some of these uh, very corrupt citizens in this classroom. Um, but they survived me, so hopefully you'll survive this class as well. Here's, here's why I say all that. Uh, because some of my own story will come up in this for illustrations. But I've had my own battles of assurance uh, for years. And at times it's been a lot more difficult than others. Uh, and what I want to do is, uh, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to tell you, you be like me, you learn from what I did because I'm the standard. That's never the way to do it. What we want to learn from is the scripture. But I want to help you see, like, here's some of the things that many other wise men and women have taught me. And I'm going to try to help train you and equip you so that inevitably when you go home and battle with assurance, at least you're a little bit more equipped. Um, I struggled with assurance in my time in college. I wasn't a believer until I was 20, even though I grew up in the PCA church. Uh, and one of the things that was very influential in my own life was that with uh, playing sports, what would happen like every single day is I would go to practice, and right after practice, I'd go into the film room, and we'd watch film, and the coach would say, Here's where you messed up. Here, 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 and here. And you would feel so good about yourself when you would leave and go to class. Um, the thing for me is what, what happened is that that often carried over into my spiritual life. And I began to only focus on where have I messed up and how can I fix it. That's not the best thing to do in Christianity. Uh, even when seminary started, uh, a lot of... Sins from my past began to very much haunt me in ways in which things I, I had truly confessed and been repentant of, things I haven't thought about for years began to then come back and haunt me, even in such a way where I greatly struggled with uh, what would be considered clinical depression and anxiety. Um, I say all that to say this. I don't know exactly where you are in your season of life, but either, I would imagine that y'all, you've at least been through a season of spiritual warfare and battling assurance, or you're in that season, or you will be in that season, or all the above. Welcome to the Christian life. This is normal. Um, here's actually what's fascinating. It's actually been in these worst moments that I've been equipped most 
to fight for assurance of salvation. Let me give you an example. Uh, who in here works out? Not me, because dad bought all the way. Um, okay. Who in here does pull-ups? Yeah, once again, not me, because gravity weighs too much. Um, but if you're going to do, let's say you're going to do 10 pull-ups. Maybe the first seven or eight reps, those aren't the most difficult ones. The hardest reps are reps nine and ten. That's when gravity is no longer your friend. And your grip starts to loosen. But here's the thing. When, in those ten reps, when are you getting stronger? The first eight or the last two? The last two. Because that's when you're actually challenging yourself. You're having to squeeze harder. You're having to pull stronger. You're doing all it takes to get yourself up even though you feel most weak. Okay? Here's what happens in the Christian life. When you're at your most weak, God is at his most strong. Forgive me if that's bad grammar, but you get what I'm saying. God loves to equip you and draw near to you most when you're at your weakest. That's often what happens in assurance of salvation. Your faith often grows most when you're battling to know that you're saved. Uh, here's a couple things. I had some students in the last time. This is awesome. Do y'all know who Kim Possible is? Yeah. Oh, y'all are amazing. This is so great. Uh, so much nostalgia for me. Seriously, uh, here's my number. What I want you to do is uh, I want you to text me if you have any questions. Maybe I know it's a big group and when a group gets to a certain size, it's kind of awkward to, to speak up. Um, hey, you want to give uh, Toby a cheer? Um, <laughs> so seriously, that's my number. I want you... Hey, yeah, we got one up here. I want you to text me if you have any questions. But here's what I also want you to do. I understand that on trips like this, uh, you might be dying to talk with someone. I am literally here, and so is so are your intern, so is your campus staff and campus minister. We are literally here for this reason. And if for whatever reason you feel like you need to talk with someone else, I, I, I really mean it when I say it. If you need, this, this actually happened with the last group. Uh, I'm willing to sit down with you for however long if you're really struggling with anything I'm saying, and I would love to help you understand what does it mean to know that you are saved. So. There we go. Here are the goals for this class. Uh, for one, I'm not going to be able, be able to answer all your questions. Uh, so I might even give you more questions than I answer. Uh, there's only so much you can do in two days. Here's what I want to do. I want to equip you so that y'all know how to use your Bible amidst warfare. I want to do, I don't just want to impact you in these two days. But what, hopefully what I can do is at least give you a step forward in knowing how to use your Bible when you're fighting to know whether you're saved. And what we're going to do, we're going to walk through Romans 5 through 8, which is really Paul's big section there of saying, hey, here's how you know that Jesus will bring you all the way home. And what I want to do is we're gonna, I'm going to teach for a portion, and then I have some case studies which are real-life case studies. They're anonymous, but they're, they're, real, they're real counseling situations that I've faced. And we're going to see how does that text, how does it apply to that particular person? Uh, here's a... Let me go to this next one. A couple of things we need to remember first. 
And also, too, if you want these slides, I'm more than happy to send them to you. Uh, so I apologize for not having handouts. A couple of things just before we dive in so we can lay the foundation. Hey, there's, can you get two more chairs? Thank you, sir. Um, I'm trying to milk my boss intern relationship with Jake because he's on the way out too. So I'm like trying to get my last like two days with him. Um, so we are made up of body and soul. So it's not body, soul, spirit or body, soul, mind. But everything else, even when we read in Scripture, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, all that fits under these two uh, realms, as it were, body and soul. Here's why that's important. What happens in the body tends to affect the soul. And what happens in the soul tends to affect the body. Give me an example. Uh, counseled numerous people where they've come in, they've been really struggling with assurance of salvation. They're a professing believer. They're, they're striving to repent. Um, one more. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're confessing their sins. They're striving to repent. But they're just like, they really are, they're, they're dying inside wanting to know if they're saved. But by asking them some questions, I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. And lots of times, and this has often surprised people, I'll start out by asking, well, how much sleep are you getting? You would be very surprised, uh, maybe not, because this might be you, that they're getting consistently four hours of sleep a night. Here's what I'll often say. Okay, let's start there. And you'd be amazed at merely as people are striving to work on better sleep habits of trying to get actually more towards you know six seven hopefully eight hours you'd be amazed at actually how that helps them get their head above water spiritually but then there's also this sometimes sometimes they are they're a healthy person um but they're just going through the thick of it and there's really they're really struggling whether they're saved or not then I'm trying to get to the heart, and I'm trying to ask them questions that deal with their soul. In other words, I'm trying to hit body and soul because that's what you're made up of. And that's very important. Here's another thing that's very important. This is what's called the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, the devil. All three parties are attacking the Christian all at the same time, even though one might be more evident than the other. But you always have to remember this. The world around us, just, you know, the unbelieving world is what I mean. The unbelieving world is seeking to attack our faith, but so is our own sinful flesh. But then also this, we can't ever forget this. So is Satan himself and his, uh, not like in the uh, movie sense, but in the true sense, his minions, right? Don't picture them as like the... You know, the minions my son loves. But you do have to remember, um, he does have an army. And they do attack. That's very important because, and I know this, this might be a little controversial, and I'm happy to have this conversation, but way too often, we will only label things as a mental health issue. 
when actually it has far more to do with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, certainly, to be very sure, certainly it can result in mental health issues, and you do have to take care of that. But most often, not all the time, but most often, there's more than merely just the mental health side of it. And that's why you need to make sure that whoever is your counselor, that they understand that you're made up of body and soul and that you're being attacked. It's very important. Um, I've talked with many people who have struggled with clinical anxiety, depression, even, even someone who I've been counseling this semester who is uh, diagnosed with bipolar depression, uh, is on medication for that. And that's something you have to deal with. Here's one thing I discovered. As I was talking to this person, and as I began to ask more questions, and, I, and I've, I've had some training and counseling, but uh, it's not like I'm a, you know, a psychiatrist. But as I began just asking more questions of this person and actually trying to apply the gospel to this person, lo and behold, God was so much at work, not because of me, but just because of the power of His Word, that that was the most significant factor of her growth from that. Now, she was still seeing her doctor. She was still talking with people. But what was interesting was that actually as she was so confronted with the unconditional covenantal love of God, there was a supernatural transformation that was happening in her life that affected the things that were happening in her body. That's why we need to be well-rounded whenever we think about these things. Okay, It's never either or. It's both hands. Another thing, I promise, we're going to get to the Word in just a second. What's very important here, if you're going to have assurance of salvation, you need to be partaking of the means of grace. Uh, someone tell me this. What is this right here? Yes. What is this cord doing? Oh, it's turning off and turning back on. See, there you go. Perfect example. What's the cord doing? Yes. Well, okay, good question or good answer. Is the core on its own powerful? No. So what's it doing? Conduit. Yes, who's a conduit? Nice. Another word for that could be means. It is the means by which the computer gets to the TV. The word, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer now this is a crucial part experienced in the community of believers, never just me and Jesus but the means of grace in the community of believers that is the means of God's grace of how he gives us more and more of the grace that is in Jesus Christ right? By the way Jake knows this Peyton knows this I am a feedback preacher, so I'm going to say at times we'll say amen, and I want you to say amen, because amen in Hebrew means I believe. And also, too, I'm used just to the locker room, so I want to know you're awake and living. All right? Amen? amen. Yeah, here we go. There we go. All right. Martin Luther used to say this. He would counsel people, and if they came to him, and one of the first questions he would ask, and this was not legalistic, but he would say, well, are, are you consistently going to corporate worship? And if they said no, then he would very gently but politely, he would say, well, let me tell you, 
there's really nothing that I'm going to be able to do if you're not going to corporate worship. But let's do this. You start going to corporate worship consistently for the next you know, month or two, and then come back and let's talk. What was amazing is that many times they would not have to come back. Because something amazing happens in worship. God meets with his people. Now, to be sure, that does not solve all the problems. <laughs> How many of us have been listening to a sermon and we're like, whoa, I need to talk with someone about that. Uh, that's often what happens. But we can't expect to have assurance of salvation if we're ignoring the means of grace. That's exactly what Satan wants us to do. Which therefore would mean if Satan wants to keep us from the means of grace, then surely we would think that's probably a good thing to partake of, right? Here's the last thing before we get go. It's very important to discern between objective and subjective. What do I mean by that? What is subjective? Yes, who said that? Fire, let's go. Um, Yes. Objective is the objective truth. Subjective is the way, you know, this is oversimplification, but it's the way I interpret or receive or feel that truth. In our day and age, we are a very emotion-prominent people. I often think that my Christian life is because of what I feel. My relationship with God is based on my current emotional state. That's a very dangerous place to be. The emotions, they're good, but if we believe that the entirety of our being is fallen and underneath the curse of sin, then that means our emotions are also fallen. That means your emotions do not always tell you the full story. And matter of fact, sometimes your emotions can straight up lie to you. This is why what's this is. I'll give you an illustration. This happened. Uh, we had earlier this semester, so I was preaching through Romans uh, one through eight, and I was preaching one night on Romans three twenty one to thirty one for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace that's in Jesus Christ. Apart from works, apart from law. We had a youth ministry that was coming to visit us. They wanted to check out what RUF was like. And and after the sermon, one one of the uh, high school boys, he came up and he was like weeping. And he said, "How, how can I just take away this feeling that I can know that I'm a believer? How can I take it back home and just have that all the time. And because I'm such an encourager, I said, you can't. (laughs) Because there are many times in the Christian life, for many different reasons, the emotions will not always match our reality. Sometimes it's because of our sin, sometimes it's because of suffering, sometimes it's just because of God's, God's will. Actually, one thing that can be really good is that God often can keep us from having these emotional highs to keep us from worshiping 
the feeling over worshiping Him. So when I was talking with a student, I said, look, your emotions will rise and fall. And sometimes like on a trip like this, it's great. And you shouldn't be like, well, this is stupid. I should just be the frozen chosen. And like, I don't want to like raise my hand like, praise the Lord, get down. You know, that's not that. It's great whenever you feel the love of God. Right? It's amazing. But just because you don't feel the love of God does not mean God does not love you. Come on now. Come on now. Keep going. It's morning. I told the student, I turned around, my Bible was on the stage. I turned around and I said, you see that? That right there determines your reality, not your emotions. Amen? Amen. That's going to be the biggest thing that I'm going to tell you the next two days. The Word of God determines your reality, dear believer. Um, You'll see that big shiny thing in the sky that can kind of burn you a little bit. It's like this big gaseous thing, and if you look at it too long, you'll kind of see spots. You know what? You've seen that in the sun? It's big. It's been here a long time. Uh, how did that thing come into existence? What? He spoke it. God said, let there be light. It wasn't, let there be light, and then he went to the kitchen and was like, okay, let me get my raw material and kind of form it. God's word is his action. Uh, in about a month, I'm going to uh, officiate a wedding for a former youth student, Kaylee Richie, uh, which is like so crazy that now these people are getting married. Um, Here's one thing that's going to be amazing. Is that at the end, I'll stand up there, Kaylee and Brady, and I'll say, by the power vested in me, I now declare you, you know, before God Almighty, to be husband and wife. Here's the thing. They're standing there. Does anything just like, you know, like the Hunger Games, you know, like she spins around and her dress changes. Does anything like that happen in that moment? No. Nothing, nothing seems to change. They're just standing there holding their hands and they're like, okay. (laughs) But actually something does happen. Because God's word, God's declaration, just as light comes into being by his word, so whenever God's word is proclaimed to people, they are transformed. Those two literally become husband and wife because of God's word being proclaimed through another sinner. And boom, right there in that moment, there's a spiritual union between them two. Is that not amazing? So how about this? When you're in worship, and maybe Saturday night was just—it was a terrible night. You did a lot of things that you just wholly regret. And everything in you, Saturday night and Sunday morning, was saying, you don't need to go to church. You don't deserve to be there. Uh, you know, everyone else who's going to be there, they have their stuff together, but you really shouldn't be there. Um, by the way, the church is only for the type of people who don't have their stuff together. Uh, 
get to the part where you confess your sins. And then the minister stands up and proclaims God's word to you saying, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And then maybe afterward he'll stand up and he'll hold up his hands and he'll say, dear Christian, rest assured that in Jesus Christ your sins are forgiven and you are clothed in his righteousness. Do you want to know what happens in that moment when the word of God is proclaimed to you? If you're a believer and only for the believer, your reality is being made in that moment. Your sins in Christ are really forgiven. Amen? Amen. You can walk out of that service and you can say, no matter what else happens today, I know for a fact that Jesus Christ and His grace has been applied to me in this moment. Now that will help you with assurance of salvation, right? Assurance of salvation, yes, there are the things that we need to look at within, the ways we grow in loving people, growing in holiness, growing in our desire for the Lord. But the primary thing about assurance is this, is learning to look away from ourselves and looking onto Christ. Which, by the way, that is faith in itself, right? Faith is looking at Jesus and looking at Him and saying, Yes. If you see this book in the bookstore, I know it's there. If it hasn't been bought already, you need to go and buy it. Kevin DeYoung, his book, Taking God at His Word. I think taking God at His Word is actually one of the most simple, clear definitions of what faith is. It's one thing to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, that He exists, that He was a real historical person. The demons believe that. It's a whole other thing to believe God. Assurance of salvation is learning to take God at His Word. That when the Word of God, when it says what it says, you say, yes. I don't always feel that. But I'm trusting that because of my union with Jesus Christ, that word is my reality. That's amazing. That's why we want to learn to, to use God's word. To learn how to open it up and not just read it and study it. But this is also like your war manual. This is something that does far more than what anyone else can do. A matter of fact, the people who you really want to talk to, the people who would really counsel you, are the people who know how to take God's Word and apply it to your life. They know how to take the Gospel and apply it. That's the transformative power. There are many other things in the world that they're, they're, they're very helpful, and they can be true, and, and we can make good use of those things. But there's only one thing that is described as the heavenly dunamis, which is where we get the English word for dynamite. And that's in Romans 1.16, where it said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power. That's the Greek word dunamis. 
There might be many other things out there that might be true and they might be helpful. They might be beneficial that are worth looking into. But there is only one thing that is the supernatural power, and that is God's word. And that's why we want to look into it. So here's what we're going to cover. We're going to see if we can get into Romans 6 today. Most likely we'll do uh, 6, 7, and 8 tomorrow. We'll see how it goes. Um, We're going to look at this. Who am I? Day two, how should I interpret my Christian experience? What I'm going to do is this. I'm going to go through a text. I'm going to teach a portion. And then I'm going to give you a real-life case study. And I want to get your input and say, how do we counsel that person based on this text? Sound good? Cool. Let's get into it. Here's how Paul typically outlines his letters. I actually found this from someone else. Grace to you. I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel. For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. Timothy says hi. I thought it was really funny. Uh, Here's how we could say, uh, that's obviously very sarcastic. (laughs) Here's what we could say Paul's outline of Romans is. He opens up chapter 1, 1 through 17. Uh, He's saying, look, I am thankful for you. And here's what I want to show you, that the gospel is God's power for salvation. All salvation, not just conversion. In order to make that point, he's going to say, look, you are tore up from the floor up, a.k.a. you're sinful. You know, Gentiles are sinful. Jewish people are sinful. Everyone's sinful. Let's pray. Um, he's going to, like, really hammer down that point. Because you can't know the good news if you forsake the bad news. You can't know how amazing God's grace is if you minimize your sin. One of the tragedies that's happening today is that we're not speaking about sin as what it really is. As heinous and as shameful as what it really is. Now, we don't want to do this. We don't want to do the whole Reformed Prosperity Gospel. Here's what we can do in the Reformed Prosperity Gospel. We think that we're prospering as Christians if we just only sit there and say, I'm a terrible person. I'm a terrible person. You know, it's not like you pick a flower and it's like, he loves me, he loves me not. It just says, I'm unlovable, I'm unlovable, I'm unlovable. That's not the gospel. The gospel is good news, not sit there wallowing your sin and saying, I'm terrible. But the good news always has sin at its foundation. That might be a bad way of phrasing it, but you see what I'm saying. In other words, sin is not the full story, but it is part of the story. And you're actually going to hurt your assurance of salvation if you don't call sin for what it is. My conscience and your conscience does not want to have sin just brushed under the rug and say that's not that big of a deal. My conscience wants to know has it been dealt with? That's what my conscience wants to know. I want to know if it's been paid for. I want to know if God has actually poured out His wrath on that. So now I literally have to say, that's no longer mine, that's Jesus's. Amen? That's what I want to know. So Paul makes that point in 1.18-3.20, to 3.21-4.25. He says, but there's good news for you. Apart from the law, you can have a righteousness. In chapters 5 through 8, Paul's answering this question. How can you be assured that you'll always have this righteousness? That's what we're going to hit at. 
After that, Paul will talk about God's plan of salvation can't be messed up. What does it mean to live in light of the gospel? Chapter 16, tell Rufus' mom, I said hello. Uh, <laughs> that's not the whole section, but it is actually funny. He does say that. He's like listing off all these people. Thank this person. Thank this person. Tell Rufus' mom, I said hello. It's like, okay. Um, you can imagine Rufus' mom going like, yeah. So, here we go. What's come before this as we get into... Do this. Open up your Bibles, Romans 5. What's come before this is that, as I've mentioned, Paul's saying the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The entire stages, all the stages of salvation, not just conversion. That means this. Paul is saying here is that the gospel is not just God's power to convert you. It is God's power to sanctify you. Meaning that you never leave the gospel behind. You don't start out by believing in Jesus and then you have to work to earn a salvation. Or this. The gospel is not Jesus saves you and He forgives you of your sin. Now you need to make sure you're good enough to keep your salvation. That's not the gospel. The gospel, Paul is saying, is sufficient for everything. And you learn more and more to see that Jesus and His righteousness is sufficient for all of life and salvation. Now, if you're going to know the good news, you need to know the bad news, and it's bad news bears, you're messed up. Uh, you're more than just broken. You're shattered. And you can't put it back together. I remember one time when I was uh, the uh, Florida basketball team won the national championship, and they had this like I don't know if it's still the same trophy, but they had this massive like crystal ball as the trophy. And when the coach at the uh, ceremony, he had the trophy, he turned around to give it to someone, and right before the guy could grab it, he let go of it, and it rolled out of his hands, and it literally shattered into like millions of pieces. Um, but it was okay because they won two national championships in a row, so they can just get another one. Um, but here's the thing. We, we often, it's not wrong to use this word, it's not wrong to say that we're broken, but sometimes we, we can say, yeah, we're broken people, but we really mean that in the sense of like, we're broken, but I kind of know how to put myself back together. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you are so shattered that you don't even know where to start. Only God can put you back together. And that's what Paul is trying to tell us. And he says, look, even though it's bad news, there's a way you can be righteous apart from earning it. Because Jesus earned it. Amen? Amen. That's amazing. Then Paul gives this example of Abraham in Romans chapter 4 saying, look, we saw even with Abraham in the Old Testament, he did not earn a righteousness, he just trusted God's promise. This is why I put this picture up there. Paul's giving this example about how Abraham looked up at the night sky and he would have seen tens of thousands of stars. And God's saying, hey, even though you're like 90 years old, I'm going to make your, your children be as many as that. And I don't know about you, I'd be like, there is no way that's going to, that's going to happen, right? And he, he didn't look at it. Here's what he didn't do. He didn't look at himself and say, you know what? If I have a lot of self-esteem, I can really do this. Here's what he did. He looked up at the stars and he said, there is no way that I could ever do this, but 
God Almighty just made a promise to me, and I'm going to take him at his word. And that was faith. And God transferred to him a righteousness all by his grace. That happened in the Old Testament. happened in the New Testament. And now what Paul's going to do is this. Because that's true, that you're saved by grace alone, nothing of your works. How can you know? Can your sin or your suffering mess this up? Y'all ready? Someone read this quote for me. Loud and clear. Oh, Toby, you were going for it. That most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. If y'all see this book in the bookstore still, you need to buy it. I'm just going to tell you. It'll change your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, 20th century pastor in London, preached a sermon series on spiritual depression. And one of the things he keeps coming back to is that how often in our thought life, we just let our thoughts take over rather than speaking back. Y'all ever heard the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself? This is what he's talking about. That you'll have thoughts that'll remind you of your past sin or of sins that have happened to you. And you'll be tempted to let those thoughts just run over your life and take over your conscience. And you get this like tunnel vision where you just you just feel like you're being pummeled in your conscience. Y'all been there, right? I've been there. Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying we have to learn to speak back. By the way, you're not crazy when you do that. That's the Christian life. You learn to speak back to the thoughts that come into your life. Um, Romans 5. Jake, read for me uh, 1 through 3. Or 1, one, through, uh, one through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here's what we see here. Paul is saying, you are justified. In, in this tense here, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Is that in the past tense, present tense, or future tense? past and particularly in the Greek it means this it's in the past tense and because that thing happened to you in the past the effects of that follow you the rest of the days of your life amen Amen. it's a definitive event that has happened it can't be undone but the effects of that follow you you if you're a believer you have been Justified. Just insert everything Brian's been talking about. Justified. That you and God are good. That your sins are totally forgiven. All your past, present, and future sins forgiven. And you've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. That definitively happened at one point in your life. You might be able to know when it happened. Maybe you don't, and that's okay. But if you're a believer, that's happened. And those clothes can never be stolen from you. Paul is saying this. Since we have been justified, therefore, we have peace 
with God. Now notice that it doesn't say the peace of God. That flows from peace with God. Paul is saying, look, there's no more war between me and God. God's no longer my enemy, but also this, I'm no longer God's enemy. This is huge for the conscience. Because oftentimes you'll fall into sin and you will begin to think, now God is just, He is so angry at me now. But is He according to that text? He can be displeased with your sin, but does that mean He's angry and wrathful towards you? Not according to this text. There is peace. Now, think about this. Because of justification happening in the past, then it says we have peace with God. Is that in the past, present, or future? Present. Meaning this. No matter what sins come in your life, no matter what sins happen to you or the sins you commit, if you're a believer, you always, in every present moment, have peace with God. Amen? Amen. Let's put it this way. Um, my son is three. If, if he has a, a new nature, if he's been born again, and that would mean he was, he's justified. And maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe it happened this past Sunday or two Sundays ago when he heard the word, I don't know. Who knows? Well, let's say he was, and maybe it's only been like two weeks. I don't know. I'm not saying that's just an example. He would have just as much justification and peace with God as me, who's been a Christian for many years. He would have just as much justification and peace with God as one of my ruling elders who's been a Christian for like 40, 50 years. When you're a believer, immediately right there in that moment, you have, as it were, the maximum amount of peace and justification because it's infinite. Right? And that never changes. There are times when God is going to convict you of your sins, and I'm going to have an example of that. But never do you lose that peace with God. But then in verses 6 through 11, look at this. I want to point out some key words. Two words in verse 6. For while we were still what? Weak. End of verse 6. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, Verse 8 says, while we were still sinners. Verse 10, for if while we were still enemies. In other words, you have a great resume without Jesus Christ. Um, I can apologize for stepping on some toes, but I'm sorry, but self-esteem can't help us from that. But if when we were that, if that's when Jesus saved us, then do you think that when you become a believer that now God's going to say, well, Peyton, pick on Peyton. Well, Peyton, now that you've sinned again, well, you're done. We're done. It's just No, that would be crazy. Because when Peyton was the furthest off from God and he saved him at that moment, do you think that now he's brought Peyton into his family that now he's going to say, okay, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. It's impossible. That's Paul's whole point. 
If God saved you when you were an unbeliever and you were a God-hater, if He saved you then, then do you think that now you're, when you're a believer and you're learning to follow Him, do you think that then He's going to say, oh, can't do it anymore, Sarah Frank. You're cut. You're, you're demoted. Can't do it. No. That'd be crazy. You're secure with God. Now, case study. Here we go. Um, Sarah Frank, can you read this for me? Uh, the whole thing? Uh, stop, stop right here. Okay. As a college student, this young woman lived in the hookup culture. She grew up in a nominal Christian home but became a Christian in college. Even after being a Christian, she still struggled with temptations with the hookup culture. She grows in repentance and gets married to a Christian young man. When it, when it was her first pregnancy, pregnancy, it ended in a miscarriage. Is God punishing me for my past sins? Is this a sign that maybe I'm not saved? Is there still some of God's wrath that is being poured out on me? Why don't I feel the love of God in this? Awesome. Uh, it's a real one. And this is a real one that has happened numerous times. Based on Romans 5, 1 through 11, how would that text counsel this person? No bad answers, so we'll go for it. Go for it. Um, people say that Jesus died for her sins. Mm-hmm. means that the person's already being paid for it, so she's not, in a sense, paying for her sins. Air five. Let's go. Yes! That's, that's huge for this person. Huge. Nailed it. She's tempted to interpret this as if there's still some of God's wrath left over for her. There is no no middle ground with God. Either your sins are paid for or they're not. And if she's a believer, which she is, then this cannot possibly be God's wrath. So patiently, gently, we want to work with her to help her reinterpret how she views this. Now, here's, some people say, what about David and Bathsheba? David sinned against Bathsheba, murdered Uriah, they had that child, and the child, you know, the child died. For one, that's still, for David and Bathsheba, that's still not God's wrath, because, remember, his wrath is always poured out on Jesus, but it was a consequence of their sin. But you have to be very, very careful. You have to, we need to be very careful with making a direct correlation, unless it's clear, between saying this is a direct consequence of that sin. There are many things just bodily that can happen. By the way, miscarriages happen all the time. We need to be very careful with saying that's a direct correlation with your past life. Matter of fact, it's probably safer to actually steer her away from that and say, look, this is so difficult. You know, praise the Lord, you know, for the covenant of grace. You know, just like David and Bathsheba, as David said, you know, my son will no longer return to me, but I will go to be with him, implying that because of the covenant, that child is actually somehow in heaven and saved. We would apply that to the situation. But what we would want to do is show her is like, 
This is a, yeah, this is unfortunately what it means to live in a cursed world. But that's not God's wrath. You are at peace with God. You're, you're not God's enemy. And what Satan would love to do is use Scripture against you to say that, well, now God's going to continue to do this in your life unless you somehow make it up. That's not the gospel. We want to redirect her eyes to see the Lord who is merciful and gracious and bountiful with love, right? That's a huge, that's a huge situation. All right, Romans 5. Oh, I already did that one. Uh, Peyton, read that quote for me. We must never look at any sin in our past life in any way except that which leads us to praise God and to magnify His grace in Christ Jesus. That's a good quote for helping that previous person. What she was doing is that she was looking back at her sin, but she was doing something that she was leaving out a big part of it. She wasn't letting Jesus go back into her own past with her. You're never going to tell yourself the full story unless you let Jesus time travel to your own past, as it were. If you're in union with Jesus... You will never be able to think about your life accurately unless you bring Jesus into the picture. Amen? Amen. For everything. Even when He convicts you. Even when He leads you to repentance. Even when He shows you like, yeah, like, I'm with you. I'm with you in this. But we need to work on repentance here. But He's always there. Don't separate your life from Jesus. Because you're in union with him, right? Chapter 5, verse uh, 12 through 21. This is a good picture. I did not make this, so, uh, but it's awesome. I'm not this smart. In, cha- in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, Paul's going to say this. There are two covenants that all people, believer and unbeliever, all people are in. You are either in the covenant of works with the first Adam is the first person ever created. The first Adam as the representative head. And his story, that covenant determines your reality. Now, Adam did a really good job, didn't he? He broke God's covenant. And because he broke it, he got this and he transferred to us a guilty status and a grimy nature. I love that word. I feel like the English just have much better terminology than us. Um, a grimy nature, a sinful nature. And it ends up leading to the grave, being a rebellious people, outside of God's paradise, and only actually being present to God's curse rather than his blessing. That's what you get in the covenant of works under the first Adam. And that's all people who've been born on this earth unless Jesus Christ has saved them. But there's a second covenant. It's the covenant of grace. And this is with the second Adam. So Paul is going to, he's going to talk about Jesus in verse 14. He's saying, who was a type of the one who was to come. Talking about how Adam was a type of Jesus to come. And because Jesus obeyed the covenant of works, Eternal righteous status, eternal holy nature that ends up being eternal life, being God's people in paradise. You're only present to God's blessing and you're under 
uh, under the covenant king, new covenant king Adam. Uh, king Adam. Here's what it means. If you're in the covenant of works, your story is just going to be marked by sin, condemnation, and death. But if you're in Jesus Christ, and you're in the covenant of grace, your story is going to be marked with righteousness, justification, life, and grace. Y'all like Disney movies? I think Disney's on to something. Like in the movie Frozen. Remember when uh, the curse grips the land and the weather changes and, and that's the way it is now? I think Disney is actually on to something when they give the picture of how a curse can grip a land and a people. Because when you're in the covenant of works, a curse grips you. You might experience many great things, gracious things from God, just in common grace, common life, and that's good. But a curse grips you unless Jesus Christ saves you. But if Jesus saves you, a curse no longer grips you, a blessing grips you. You know what's awesome in Sunday worship? This will happen, I think, at the end of the week, too. Minister will stand up very end of the service, he'll lift up his hands and will say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What's that called? The benediction. Which literally means a good word. The benediction is a blessing. It is a blessing of God to his people. And just as the example of like frozen, how a curse grips the land, if you're a believer, and it's only for the believer, it's those in the covenant of grace. When that word is proclaimed to you, that blessing grips you. And it literally follows you all the days of your life. Now, that'll change the way you sit there and say, yes, Lord. That blessing follows you around as if it was like, you know, your FBI agent watching you on your phone, right? Because if you're in the covenant of grace, if you're in union with Jesus Christ, it's a blessing. No matter what tragedy is happening in your life, no matter what sin and suffering happens in your life, his blessing follows you. Let me leave you one last case study. It's a great quote. I'll get to that later. Um, young man in his 20s, he's a believer. Uh, bearing fruit that's noticed by himself and others, but yet he had a wild life during his first year and a half of college. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, or whatever the saying is nowadays. Um, was it with sex, drugs, and uh, what? Young, young who? Whatever. Um, uh, I, I dare not say sex, drugs, and Taylor Swift because like people be like all fired up, like no. Um, <laughs> When pursuing the Lord in the early years, seemed to be going great. He's growing in the knowledge of the gospel grace. Since he's confessed and truly repented of, now years later, coming back to haunt him, it's a very common situation. I've had this numerous times. He begins to think that God's still angry with him for his past sins. Even the less heinous sins become so sensitive to his conscience that he feels like it's, the, it's like the end of his relationship with God. And 
his conscience so hounded for any sin or even a potential sin. He begins to feel like God will let him into heaven, but he really needs to get him right before then. He's had a history of clinical depression and anxiety. It's obviously a very similar story to me. His pastoral counselors also mentioned that there seems to be a lot of spiritual warfare happening in his life. This happened, I've had this so many times with various different details for guys and girls. How does that text of the two different covenants, how do you think that might counsel this person? Let me give you a hint. What story is this guy telling himself? The story of the covenant of works or the covenant of grace? Yeah. As I had one friend actually tell me one time, we were reading a book on covenant theology, and I was actually opening up to him stuff similar to this. And he said, why are you living like you're still under the first Adam? Why are you thinking that your life is just going to lead to condemnation and death and sin when you're in the covenant of grace? Do you know what we need to do for people who are like this? We need to redefine the narrative of their life. We need to help show them you're in the covenant of grace. Jesus took the wrath of God for you. Amen? Amen. Jesus took your death. Jesus took your condemnation. Jesus took your sin. And He gives you His righteousness, His life, His grace, His peace. See how the Word determines your reality. And that gives you assurance of salvation. Let me do this. Let me pray. And uh, if you want to come up and ask me some questions afterward, well, I'll leave more room for questions tomorrow, but please text me if you have any other questions. And uh, let me pray, and then y'all come up afterward. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace that is so infinite and full, overflowing in Jesus Christ for us. And Father, I pray that consciences would be relieved, that burdens would be undone. Lord, but also for any of those who are not believers, that they would be born again by seeing what all Jesus Christ has done for us. And may we not merely say it verbally, but may we say it in our hearts. Amen. We believe that this is true. So Lord Jesus, make it true. By the power of the Holy Spirit, make it true in our lives. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen.